Rochelle, we got Ellie on the line here. What do you want to ask her? When you're doing calls with your passive investors, what are the most important questions that you want to make sure you cover with them? During the call, there are a few questions. Some of them are just to make sure that they're comfortable, that they're interested in, in, in multifamily, generally speaking. So the confused mind tends to say no. So making sure that A, that they, they're interested in real estate and B, that they know how a syndication works because many people don't, still don't, that's that's going to be very crucial because some of them are going to be embarrassed to tell you that they're not exactly sure how this whole thing you know, works. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. Very excited for today's show. We have two amazing guests on the line with us. We have Ellie Perlman and Rochelle McCoy. So first off, Ellie, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I, I very much appreciate it and super excited to, to hear more about you and, and learn a little bit more about you. So you know, that said, would you, would you start us off by telling us about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'm an operator, you know, owner operator and a syndicator of multifamily. And yeah, I started my career back in 2000, around 2007, 2006. So very, very interesting time to get started in real estate. And um, at that time, I was not an investor just yet. I was a real estate attorney, lawyer, Mm -hmm. and learned a lot about how risky it is to take um, very you know, aggressive debt, because um, I experienced that with my clients. And yeah. then after my legal journey um, in real estate, I switched to property management. I know it's not as uh, exciting, perhaps, as uh, being a lawyer, but I wanted to be closer to the real estate world and understand how it works. And after that, I made a transition, um, you know, moved to the U.S. from Israel and went to MIT and got my MBA degree. And mm-hmm. not so long after graduation from, from grad school, I actually started Blue Lake Capital, which is the company that I, that I manage today and owns over $400 million in asset under management. Nice, nice. Now, in interesting, the jump from real estate attorney to property manager, you usually see people wanting to go the other direction. Um, was this part of the master plan? I mean, was your ultimate goal to become a syndicator and investor like you are now? Or was, was there something else that drove that? I mean, there was a general plan of owning real estate. I wasn't sure exactly how to do it. I definitely did not plan to go to law school to and then quit my job and become a property manager. But I normally don't follow, you know, the path that many people take and people raised their eyebrows and and were kind of a little bit shocked because you don't go to law school and then kind of, it it looked like a step down from where I was because it's not Mm -hmm. as prestigious. You don't make as much money, but um, I don't know. It was, I, I really wanted to be part of the real estate world to understand 
how to handle tenants and and how real estate actually works. So I I took I took a chance and I yeah. knew it was not going to be forever. And I said, hey, let's try it and see where it's going to lead me. Yeah. You know, well, there, there's a lot of things here that I like because, you know, you understand the real estate from an attorney's perspective. Okay. So you understand the whole legality of everything. Now you understand it from a property management perspective. You know, you went to, to MIT, which, you know, is kind of a big deal. You know, um, I'm still upset at them because they didn't accept me 20 years ago. But so you you have the almost the perfect picture, perfect background to do what you're doing now, because you have a lot of experience in there. And I imagine that your little foray into property management has paid dividends many times over what you're doing right now. So. Yeah, it was interesting the way that you know, that it happened. And I think if, you know, you can have the best education in the world and the best mm-hmm. experience, if you're not truly passionate about that, about real estate or anything else that you do for that matter, you're going to be burnt out and you, mm-hmm. you would want out. So there has yeah. to be that, um, that desire. And and even after I graduated from MIT, I, I wasn't sure I knew I would, I would, want to be an investor. I, I want to be an investor, but I wasn't sure, is it fix and flips? Is it, you know, is that the path to go? Should I buy single family homes and rent them one by, you know, yeah. one after another, or should it be, you know, multifamily or retail or any other? There were so many options. Mm-hmm. And this is where I use my education. And, and I understood, you know, if I want to scale, I know how to scale companies because that's what I've learned to do. And I realized that buying one asset after another, if it's one door at a time, it's going to take me so much more time to scale. Finding home, you know, single family homes, negotiating the price, yeah. you know, managing it's, it, it takes, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that it's as, as hard or as easy as finding multifamily mm-hmm. property, but you still need to put time into buying one asset after the other. And I yeah. did kind of I reverse engineer the time it's going to take me to get to a certain amount of doors that I wanted to get to. And I realized mm-hmm. that, that that's not going to be, that's not going to be the way. So I, yeah. I understood I needed to go big and start buying multifamily. And I've, I've never actually bought a rental property, mm-hmm. just one door. I think the, the smallest asset I've ever owned was 28 units. That was one of my first assets. And probably the big one, the biggest one is 1,032 units. Um, so that, that, that was the range. So, and again, I decided to take, you know, it was a leap of faith and um, I decided to bet on myself and take the risk. And again, other people yeah. looked at me and said, oh, you're starting big. You should start with one door. You should learn how to do it and then slowly go and, and you know, graduate, quote unquote, to multifamily. And I just thought yeah. that's, that's not my way. Yeah. You know, and and I realized that as well. And it's it's interesting. All the things that went through your head that you were just talking about, I, I had the same same questions. I always wanted to be involved in real estate. I did dabble in single family, you know, and I did start looking at the fourplexes and the eightplexes and and whatnot. But uh, you know, I was I was active duty for twenty years and um, just retired. But the whole time, I think. Part of the reason I went 20 years active duty was because I couldn't figure out how to get into to real estate. I couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I, I couldn't figure out how to how to take that next step. But when I finally did, you know, it was it was, it was magical. But uh, um, so so how did you so going from property manager? How did how did you how did Blue Lake start? And 
Um, was that was that your first company doing syndications, or did you have something in between? Yeah, Bluelick was the first company that I started that actually started buying real estate sourcing deals, basically reach out to investors and and get you know raise capital and invest. Um, after I've done property management, I realized, hey, I actually don't know much about running a business. And I understood right away that if I wanted to build and scale a company, I have to treat it like a business. And I said, hey, the best place to buy real estate is the United States. And I remember learning back in Israel about the concept of the self-made man. And I said, that's perfect. I'm going to be a self-made woman. I'm going to move there. And I said, also, you know, I needed a place that is going to give me the the business education that I'm lacking, learning how to read, you know, financial reports beyond what I've learned as a property manage manager, um, learning how to start companies, learning how to how to find investors, how to deal with investors, and all of that I basically learned at MIT. And that that knowledge I actually implemented towards building Blue Lake. But Blue Lake, yeah, that to your question, that was the first company that I've started that actually, you know, bought real estate. Yeah. And what were some of the challenges you faced, you know, with the first couple of deals that you did with Blue Lake? I think one of them is uh, one of the challenges is, is something that I'm a challenge that I hear a lot of young syndicators um, having to deal with, which is it's kind of the chicken and the egg. You don't have experience. Yeah. We, you know, what broker is going to want to work with you and what seller is going to want to take a chance with you, but if nobody's going to give you the first deal, how are you going to get that experience? Yeah, and 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 the, the thing is that brokers can smell sometimes inexperienced. You know, if you're inexperienced, they can smell it. It's the way you speak. It's the words you choose. If if you're not using the right lingo, if you're not confident enough, and they don't want to take the chance because if you're going, if you, they're not 100 percent sure that you can execute and close the deal, then they're not going to recommend you to the seller and having a deal falling, falling through the cracks. That's, that's the, not even falling through the cracks, just falling, just not being executed. It's the worst thing that can happen to them Yeah, because they can, they can, they can lose the deal. So that's one of the challenges. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a a big conundrum. You know, it's, uh, I reflect on and off and you have to have experience to get experience, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. kind of, like I said, a chicken and egg, you know, which comes first, you know, you, you kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a lot. I think a lot of people have to, have to navigate. How, how did you crack that egg? So there are multiple ways to do it. I would say the main way is, and, and you of course can start. I've seen, I've seen syndicators, young syndicators, you know, basically bypass that hurdle in different strategies. One is to say, okay, I'm just going to buy you know, 10 units, 12 units, something small enough that the brokers are, are, you know, many times not, they're they're more flexible when it comes to who they're selling it to. And the sellers are mostly not the sophisticated, um, you know, big companies, big syndicators or institutionals that are very picky about their buyer. So you can go that way and then get your, you know, it's easier to get a nine units than it is yes. to get 200 units. But yeah. for those who wanted to scale, and that's basically what I've done, I said, okay, 
I want to start buying large properties, but no one in his right mind is going to give me an asset. So I can rely on someone else's experience. And there are multiple ways to do that. You can um, find a sponsor that has a deal and find a way to contribute, to give some value to, to um, to that sponsor. Or you can partner with someone that already has the experience and say, hey, why don't we partner up? I'm going to do all the work. You can maybe loan me, quote unquote, your your balance sheet, maybe sign the loan. Maybe you know some investors that you can bring to the table. And when they're talking to the broker, they're presenting it as, you know, a as a partnership. And so the partnership has experience or the partner has experience. And that way, your lack of experience is just not relevant. Now, it's easy said than done. It takes a lot of practice. But it's definitely, definitely, you know, doable. Yeah, yeah. We we went the the second route where we brought somebody with experience onto our team, and it it made a whole lot of difference. You know, it it really did. Once once we were able to bank on that experience, you know, now our group had three thousand doors instead of you know zero, and they all belong to one person. You know, but uh, we didn't have to say that. You know, but uh, end of the day, yeah, I think. The way to crack the nut, uh, I think I said crack the egg earlier. I just made up that term, I guess. It's going to be you know, the new hit term um, around the world. But uh, the way we cracked that nut was just how, how you said at the end time. Um, the second time as well is find somebody who's experienced. You know, you find your deal, you roll with it and get them to partner with you. So something I, I want to, to ask you about is, you know, you went from, I think you said 28 units was one of your first ones to, you know, the thousand you know, what was that like going up from, you know, the smaller stuff to the really, really big stuff? And what were your big challenges there? It actually doesn't matter the 28 units and the thousand. I mean, it's the same amount of due diligence to say you run the numbers. The model doesn't care if it's 28 or 2,800 mm-hmm. units. The only difference was just needing to raise more money. So as the deal, obviously, as the deal is, is larger, you need to raise, you know, you need to bring a bigger check. I, I I mean, I think it was, it was pretty natural. I think, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, progression from the 28 units was bought alongside with a hundred units that was nearby. So that was, mm-hmm. you know, hundred, we manage it as 128 units, but then, you know, there's a 250 and, you know, and it grows from there to 400, 500. It's, mm-hmm. it really it's really the same 250 units or 500. It's everything is exactly the same with the exception of, okay, can you, the the capital is the only difference. Mm -hmm. Can, can you bring eight or 9 million versus 25 million? Can, can you do that? Can you make that jump? That's the only difference between them. Um, I would say actually the second, the the second difference is you're, you're going to be talking with kind of the high caliber broker because they're managing the larger deals. When you're looking at 50, 80, hundred million dollar deals, you are competing with different buyers. So you're not competing with, you know, small syndicators or maybe a doctor that has the clinic and has $10 million to put as a down payment and he can buy $30 million deal. Um, You're dealing with companies that have processes that have a lot of capital. So you need to understand who you're competing against, what's your strengths and what are your 
weaknesses. So mm-hmm. one of your strengths can be, hey, we're still small and nimble. We're competing for the same deals that larger companies compete with and institutional buyers compete. You know, we, we compete with them, but it takes them 60 to 90 days to close because they have committees and they need to approve everything. We can do it in 45 days, mm-hmm. 40 days. 35 days, they can't do it. So understanding who you're competing with, that's going to give you a lot of, that's going to give you the advantage you need. If you're looking at the 20 to $30 million, the smaller deals, then maybe the other sponsors can also execute quick, quickly because their companies are also small, but maybe you have a much stronger balance sheet. Maybe you can put a million dollars hard as a non-refundable down payment and they are not as liquid. So this is where you're going to shine. And on the larger deals, on the $100 million deals, someone can put $3 million, not even blink because they're, they have a lot of equity. So this is not going to be your strength. So I would say between the two type of, you know, the, the size of the deal, you need to understand who's the, who's the other buyers, what their strengths and weaknesses, and play to your strengths. Love it. I love it. Yeah, a lot, a lot of good information there, and you know, it's, it's evidently that that was a very self-serving question because we're trying to go from you know the eight to ten million dollar purchase prices to the you know twenty to forty million dollar purchase prices. But absolutely love that. So we're going to switch gears slightly here, Elliot. I want to ask you about your why. You know, your big burning why, as I like to say it. You know, what's your motivation for doing this? I'm going to try and make it you know short, but you know, basically, you know, I I grew up very, very poor. So to get to where I am today, my why was to never experience what I've experienced as a kid. And, you know, when you're the poorest kid in class and they make fun of you, um, when you grow up and you don't really have enough money to pay rent or you you need to borrow money to go buy groceries, that's a tough place. And I knew I didn't want to stay in that place. So that was my why to get to where I am. And and I thought, okay, I'm going to be, I knew, I always knew I wanted to buy real estate, but I I thought I needed a lot of money to do it. And I said, okay, you know what? I can become a real estate lawyer and get close to that because, you know, I can still take loans and pay, you know, for college and, and grad school. So that was my why until that moment. Right now, my why is definitely taking care of my immediate family. And, you know, making sure that the people that I care about, the day that they're going to be taken care of. And that's, that's the most important thing. That's the thing that helps me deal with a lot of things that, that happen. Cause when you run a company, things happen all the time in real estate, things happen all the time. There's always things that are, uh, that you don't, you don't expect. And, um, you know, reality is it 100% is not going to happen based on what your you underwrote when before you bought the deal. There's always going to be things that are going to happen. Um, and it can take an emotional toll on you. And reminding myself of, of my why, that's very helpful. And I think another por- part of the why is the desire to create, to build a company, to grow the company, the satisfaction that comes with it. Because at some point, okay, you have enough money to help whomever you want to help. You have enough money to set you up for life. And so why do you keep doing it? You know, why do all the most you know successful people that we know from the media, why do they go to work every day? They don't have to, they have enough for generations, you know? And so it, there's something at some point at the beginning, it's always because of the money when you're coming from lack of, and at some point it switches 
And there's something inside of you that is just pushing you to create, to build, to move forward, yeah. because that is very satisfying. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's it's about potential too. I think everybody has this innate desire to reach their potential, you know, and I, I think that's, that's what you're looking for. You, you, you see what, what can I eventually do? What, how much good can I do? How much can I create? What, what's the, what's my limit? Hopefully, hopefully you find that uh, you don't have a limit. You find growing and growing and growing. But so last question for you, before we bring Rochelle on, what's next for you? Um, we recently launched fund, the $100 million fund we call Rev mm-hmm. Fund. And the goal is really to allow investors to invest across multiple assets, multiple portfolios and markets. Because mm-hmm. the thinking is when it when when and if the economy you know switches, different markets are going to behave differently. And we've noticed that the best properties, the best investments that performed the best were those with multiple assets in them. So that was the goal behind starting, um, you know, uh, Rev Fund. And so that's a very exciting fund that we're we're working on. And uh, we keep, you know, purchasing assets and adding the assets to the fund. Um, and there's a lot of demand from investors. So that was that was surprising, surprising to us because we were not sure when we launched it whether investors would like to know exactly which asset they're going to invest in or you know if there if there's going to be any interest in a fund. And we said, hey, let's let's take a chance. It was extremely expensive to start it. And we said, let's take a chance and see what happens. And the demand was actually overwhelming. So um that's that's the next thing that you know my that I'm focused on right now, our fund. Our multifamily fund. You know, I'll tell you, I, I just uh, um, started investing passively a lot more than, than before, and I pick operators. I have I, I do not pick properties. I pick operators, and I, I've realized that it's it's not the property that makes the money; it's the operator that makes the money. And I think that's what your your investors are are doing is they're they pick you as the operator, and they trust you. That you're going to pick the right property, you're getting the right property under contract, and you're going to manage it properly. So, um, That's a good you know, point. And, and, yeah, I, I say this a lot. Any anybody can put numbers on a pitch deck. You know, anybody can make a pitch deck look really, really well. It's it's the operation that's going to, you know, bring the returns. So, anyway, that's that's. I'm guessing that's a large part of your success is your your reputation or the success of the fund is your your pre-existing reputation and people thinking on your reputation on that one. So. Um, Good luck with that. And uh, how can um, how can people find out more about that fund? So if you basically Google my name, Ellie Perlman, or go to my website, ellieperlman.com, mm-hmm. then, you know, you can read, you know, we have, there's a lot of information there. Um, there's, if I'm not mistaken, we added the, um, you know, our la- latest performance report and all the previous assets that we bought and sold. Mm-hmm. And there's information there on RevFund as well. So that would probably be the best way to read more about the fund. And um, there's an area on the website where you can leave your information uh, to set up a call with me personally to discuss, you know, investing. And that's uh, that's about it. It's very straightforward. All right. Sounds good. We'll put that information in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Um, switching gears again, we're going to bring Rochelle on the line. So Rochelle, welcome. Thanks for having me, Brian. Good to be with yeah. you, Ellie. So, Rochelle, do us a favor and tell us about you now. Tell us where you're from, what you're doing, and uh, why you're in multifamily. Sure, absolutely. So, I've um, got a 20-year career in business and marketing, So, and I still have a full-time W-2 today. I um, decided a few years ago to pivot into real estate. 
and kind of feel it out and see what it was all about. Um, my husband and I, we've been married for over 20 years and we've always talked about owning real estate, having some rental properties, and we just never really took action. So five years ago, we officially made the decision that we were going to move forward with it and have since then bought um, three fourplexes, a single family and a condo. So we've got a nice small portfolio here local to us where we live in central Illinois. And uh, now we're pivoting once again and uh, looking to multifamily. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you say three, four plexes. So you got, you got, you know, 15 or so rental properties right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Nice. Yeah. Um, so how, how is that? Uh, how are those performed so far? Doing okay? Or what, what have you learned from that? They're doing okay. Um, <laughs> you you quickly learn when you have the small properties that, um, you know, they just like Ellie discovered, they don't always grow and scale at the pace at which you want them to. So, you know, at the end of each year, you look at your, your profit and loss statement and you're like, oh, well, it looks like we made all this money and revenue, but, you know, we put so much back into the property or, you know, you have a vacancy or whatever that may be, you know, one major repair. And it just, it literally wipes out your profits for the entire year. So, um, that's where I, I really thought there has to be a better way. I know there's lots of people making money in real estate and I want to figure out, uh, you know, what path they're on that I'm not and see if it'll work for me. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And like I said, I, I had a handful of single family properties and I, I found the same thing, you know, month over month, it looks like you're making money, you're making money. And then <laughs> the furnace goes out, you know, and it's like, well, there, there went uh, a year's worth of profits, you know, and, right. and, and same thing. Um, you know, I have definitely found with multifamily, I'm sure I like to say the same is, you know, when you, when you scale those, those expenses tend to be smaller portion of, of, of the revenue, you know, so you're able to, you know, take it in stride, you know, and, and the one or two vacancies, they're, they're going to happen. And it's, it's not that big of a deal anymore. So Rochelle, same question that I ask everybody on the podcast, what is your big burning why? About uh, five or six years ago. When I started looking into real estate, I was in a position with my current employer that um, the job I was in was completely eliminated. So one day our positions were, you know, valuable and we were helping our company meet its strategic objectives. And then the next day, not (laughs) just gone, the jobs were gone. Um, And so thankfully, there's four other people with myself in that same job. Thankfully, we were shifted into a different job immediately. So none of us were unemployed, Um, but it was a much less desirable job. It was not the career path that I wanted for myself. And so that was really my eye opener to say, I have to have a backup plan. The company I work for is in industries that are very, very cyclical. So I had seen, you know, we have a lot of ups and downs and a lot of layoffs over the years that I worked there. And I've seen it happen to other people at my company time and time again. It had just never been me. (laughs) And so... When it finally came, the you know the ball kind of rolled down the hill, and it was me. I just realized I had to have a backup plan and some other way to be able to support my family. If the next time that happened, or you know, if there was a next time, I truly was unemployed. Uh, I just needed to have another source of income coming in. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, you find that multifamily is going to give you the stability that the single fam or the single family, the W two job may not in in cases of you know cyclical nature. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. Last, it's something uh, you have more control over, for sure, versus absolutely. just going to a job every day and expecting to stay employed. You know, you can you can be a great employee and you can do quality work, but there's just mm-hmm. no guarantee there. And so I just want to be more in control of my future. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, here comes my favorite part of the show. Rochelle, we got Ellie on the line here. What do you want to ask her? Sure. 
So Ellie, I'm uh, excited to be talking to you today. I've heard you speak at a couple different conferences. So really happy that we get to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, I know you've done a, you've got a lot of experience with capital raising as we've already talked about today. So I've centered my questions around raising capital. Um, I've currently got a 40 unit under contract and that is one of the roles I'm playing on the team is the capital raiser. So really where my head's at these days is figuring out how do I do that well and um, how do I grow and scale that sec uh, particular part of my uh, multifamily journey. So that said, the first question I have for you is when you're doing calls with your passive investors, what are the most important questions that you want to make sure you cover with them? Well, first of all, congratulations on the deal. That's exciting. Thank you. Um, Thank you. During the call, I, I would say the most important, there, there are a few questions. Some of them are just to make sure that they're comfortable, that they're interested in, in, in multifamily, generally speaking, because you can reach out to people in your network and you know spend time talking with them just to learn, oh, I'm not into real estate, or I don't know, how, how does the syndication work again? And so the confused mind tends to say no. So making sure that they they know, A, that they, they're interested in real estate, and B, that they know how a syndication works, because many people don't, still don't. Um, that's that's going to be very crucial, because some of them are going to be embarrassed to tell you that they're not exactly sure how this whole thing, you know, works. And, um, you know, that's, I would say, just you know, ask a qualifying question such as, have you ever you know, invested in a syndication? Or do you want me to go over the, you know, the basics of how it works and kind of explain that, you know, it doesn't have to be more than a few minutes, um, but make sure that they understand the fundamentals because when, if, the answer is no to those questions. Are you interested in real estate? And do you know how syndication works? How syndication, the whole process works? Um, they're never going to say yes to an investment. That should be the third, you know, question. Are you interested, you know, in in this deal? And it's not how I would ask it, but um, you know, many times I ask them, "What's important to you in an investment? What are the returns that you're targeting?" Sometimes they're not. Surprisingly, many investors say, "I don't really target certain, you know, return." In terms of cash on cash or IRR, it's, you know, most of them are open to almost any market within the US. And it's like Brian said, it's more about vetting the sponsor. So another tip for, you know, that, that I can give you is to make sure they know a lot about you. If you put information about you on, on, you know, the website and make sure it's not just about the deal because they can read about it. It's more about they're they're testing to see how interested, you know, they are in and how much they trust you. So I hope that that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, that is. You Ellie question. mentioned one of my favorite questions, which is, you know, what are you looking for in an investment? All right, and I love that question because um, number one, it helps you on the back end to explain more about your investment. You know, so that's one of the questions I start with, you know, after after formalities, tell me about yourself. You know, what are you looking for in an investment in general? And they'll start to, some some people don't have a philosophy, but others do. And when they say this is what I'm looking for, the great part about that is, you know what they're looking for. And you can tell if your deal's right for them, you know, and you can say, you know, and have the courage if, if the deal's not right for them to say, 
this deal is probably not right for you. You'll be amazed at how many people will tell you, yes, it is right for me. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. That's my favorite question, just because it gets them talking about what they want and they need. And that helps you later on determine what you need to talk about, about your deal to sell it. Absolutely. I love that. And yeah, sometimes it's hard getting the conversation started, but I've what I found with the investors I've talked with thus far is once you give them an opportunity to speak about, you know, what it is they're looking for, what it, what it is they're interested in, usually they keep the conversation going and probably reveal a lot of the questions you were going to ask anyway. <laughs> you just kind of let them, let them uh, lead the conversation a little bit in that type of way. So I like that. All right. So my next question for you is what communication channels or methods do you find the most successful in reaching prospective investors? That's an interesting question um, because the first deal that I had, before I, I did my first deal, I was putting information on social media. So I kind of switched, I, I flipped a model where, you know, instead of going and finding investors, because I started here, all my network was basically in Israel. And to be honest with you, most of them were unable to invest anyhow. And so coming to a new country and graduating from grad school, most, you know, or maybe not most, but some of them, some of my classmates still had, you know, very high student loans and they were not in a position to invest also. So I had to figure out a way to have investors that did not have friends and family to reach out to and say, Hey, this is what I do now. Are you interested? So I actually flipped the script and put content out there about real estate investing and had an you know an area on my website where investors can leave information to asking to schedule a call with me. And at that point, you're in a very different position because they're reaching out to you. You're not reaching out to them, which means that they've already vetted you. They're interested in real estate and they know how syndication works for the most part because they they've done their research. So the 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 conversation was, you know, about my experience, you know, the type of assets I'm looking for. So, you know, that's that's basically how I did it. I think if, you know, if you already have a deal, many, I would say nine out of 10 new syndicators reach out to friends and family. And um, it's, it's a little bit tricky because many times, you know, investors, they need to get used to the fact that you're doing this. So you came from real estate already, you already ran properties, which is great because many syndicators start from an unrelated you know, they have an unrelated background, that's a little bit harder to process. So that's a natural, the story is very na a natural progress and, um, you know, progress from buying, you know, single family homes, small multifamilies to the larger multifamilies. So it actually makes sense. And that's your track record. And that's, and that's great because investors can basically, you know, rely on, on that um, track record. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, the only thing else, I mean, just double down on that. Your your background, focus on your background that applies to to multifamily, and and you know you'll you'll find it a lot easier to to jump in. Um, and from what Ellie said, I come from the military to multifamily. I don't know how you know far apart two professions can be, but uh, um, end of the day, you know, focus on your your successes and use those successes to build your build your reputation with people. 
Yeah, I really like that because I've, you know, now that you say that, I've got some educational content on my website. Not a lot. I just launched it a couple months ago. So it's pretty slim right now, but it's, you know, you build it over time. Um, But one of the gaps I see after speaking with you is that I really don't talk about my background a whole lot. I've got a bio, which is, you know, a couple paragraphs. It's pretty short, but I think some additional content around my why and my experience and and that I think would be um, a good addition to the, the content already on my website. So thank you. Absolutely. I would say take a page out of Ellie's book too. I and mean, look at her webpage. She's got her story on there, you know, and a lot of people will look at her story and a lot of people will look at your story and it'll resonate with them. I think you, what you told us earlier about your employment issue where, you know, very cyclical in nature and you've seen people, a lot of people laid off and you've seen a lot of, you know, people lose jobs and whatnot um, and your, your own change, that's going to resonate with a lot of people. And using the fact that multifamily can mitigate that risk is something that a lot of people are going to say. I'm, I, I've seen people in my industry have the same problem. I've seen people in my company with the same problem. I want to do what she's doing. Yeah. yeah. And I would like to echo Brian's you know, words because many investors, when I ask, what's your goal? Why, you know, what's important to you in investment, but also what's your goal? Why do you want to invest with a syndicator? Many investors say, hey, I have a great job. It pays well, but I don't want to work until retirement. I want to create, start building my portfolio so I can create enough steady cash flow that at some point, way before retirement age, I'm able to quit my job. So a story about how your W2 job was unreliable and, and, and you wanted you know, to find something that is more satisfying and to be to live life on, on your terms, a lot of investors can find will find that very interesting and they can, you know, I, I think it's going to speak to a lot of them. And that's your story. And that's a story that, you know, a lot of them are, it, it's going to be, it's going to really help them look at you and say, oh, she's done what I want to do. I actually want to, you know, I, I want to have my income, enough income to not be dependent on my W-2 job. So that will resonate with a lot of them. I love that. Okay. So I'm going to go to my next question. If you could go back in time to when you started capital raising, is there anything you would change based on what you've learned now that you're more experienced? Uh, No, (laughs) that's always my answer. If I would change anything, I would never change. That's incredible. I want to, you know, I've made mistakes. I can share the mistakes that I've made, but I had to go through those mistakes to be where I am today and to be who I am. Um, so maybe I can share a couple of mistakes I've done. Um, let, let me think. Probably starting to buy a bit earlier because I thought, okay, I needed, because I, I was putting content out there and ra- I was raising money six to eight months before I actually had the first deal because I wanted to make sure, the lawyer in me wanted to make sure that this is safe and that you have enough investors in a pipeline ready to invest before you commit to something you may not know how to do. And I think, or not be able to to do. And many people, I've noticed that they have to understand how to do something before they commit. And they want to know that they're 90 or hundred percent certain that they can execute on something before they take that step. And many, many successful people that I've learned and I'm learning them because I want to learn how they did what they did. 
and to get inspiration and tips from them. A lot of them just figured things out as they were, you know, walking through a certain path. It was a risk that they took and they were willing to take it and they didn't wait to learn everything, to know everything, to feel safe before they jumped in into it. So one of the things, you know, that I think was my mistakes w- was basically to wait instead of jumping. And I would have been fine, but I wanted to make sure that there's enough investors, you know, that I could close the deal. Um, that That's one of the mistakes that I've done, but I, I'm glad that I took the time to do it because now I remember that, you know, how I felt back then. And that helps me take more risks and say, Hey, you, you could have done it differently. So that gives me the inspiration to take more calculated risks and understand, you know, that I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll do it. And it's, it, it's, it's been very helpful, you know, when, you know, in, in growing my company. Yeah. And I've discovered that in this journey that, it, you know, you don't always know what the next step is, but you keep yeah. putting one foot in front of the other and yeah. the path will lay itself out for you. So you just have to have faith that, um, yeah. faith to keep going basically. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say for me, I was, I was afraid. I mean, it, it's hard to say that, but that, that was the actual word. I was afraid of what people would think. I was afraid if I called people up and said, Hey, I'm, I'm a, I'm an apartment investor. Now this is what I'm doing. You know, even, even before we had our first deal under contract, I was afraid of later not doing what I told everybody I was going to do. You know, so I didn't talk to a lot of people about it because of that fear. You know, I think that fear held me back a lot on that first capital raise because, you know, I, I ended up woefully underprepared, the opposite of Ellie, you know, woefully underprepared <laughs> to raise capital because I was afraid of talking to people about it, you know. And then once I had my first deal, I was very happy to talk about it because we had something under contract and it was like, you know, this is it. We're going to close, you know, this is, but I, I just say, don't, don't let fear holds you back, you know, pick up the phone, call people, email people, text people, and, you know, let people know what you're doing. You know, you'll, you'll have a certain amount of success from your website, but, uh, you know, and people can go to the website, learn more about you. And that, that's a good, good place to refer them to once you do talk to them, but don't, don't be like me where you're too afraid, too worried about a potential future failure to talk to people about it now. Awesome. I love that. Right. For sure. We got time for one more quick question. If you got one. I do. Yes. Awesome. So Ellie, what is your capital raising superpower? Uh, I don't think of myself as someone <laughs> that, you know, I, I don't think I have superpowers, but um, I think being very vulnerable and, and open with, and, and, you know, raising money does not stop when you close the deal. When you manage the deal, you're all, also raising money because investors are going to look at you know how you're communicating if when things go wrong and things will go wrong because it's real estate whether you're communicating that or you're trying to mask it and that will make their decision whether to invest with you again whether to bring their brothers sisters friends colleagues and so um i think just being very open and when things go wrong for instance you know just to communicate that and not um, be afraid of the repercussions so for instance, when we bought an asset, when we put it on the contract, it was 98% occupied. About four or five days before closing, we realized that the seller was not managing the property well and the property dropped, the occupancy dropped to 82%. So we were not even eligible to get the loan because you have to be stabilized, meaning 90% occupied for 90 days to be eligible to get 
you know, a Fannie or Freddie loan. And um, it was, it was painful, but being open with investors and say, Hey, dear investors, this is what's happening. This is why, and this is how we're going to fix it. And if you still want in, that's great. If not, just let me know. Cause I understand it's not the deal you signed up for and not even one investor wanted out. And that's because when you're communicating, they trust you because they know things are not always going to go as planned. That's why you're being compensated because you're take, willing to take a risk. But if they know that when things are going to go, you know, when things are are not going as planned, you're going to be upfront with them. It means that they can trust you. So they're going to be more likely to invest and keep, and they feel comfortable investing with you. So I think just being, you know, open with my life story and also um, open with what's going on with the properties, that's um, that's something that I keep, you know, I want to tell them the good, bad, and ugly. And it's so far, it's been working well. So if this is a superpower, I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Uh, open, open and honest. I, I've had people tell me that I'm honest to a fault, you know, and, <laughs> you know, maybe too honest on certain things, but it, it has, you know, people respect that, you know, and, and, yeah. and they know that they're going to get a straight answer for it from you. Um, and Ellie, I, I do think that is absolutely a superpower, you know, so, um, anyway, we're, we are about out of time. So one question for both of you, Ellie, you go first, how can listeners learn more about you? So listeners can, um, basically Google ellieperlman.com mm-hmm. and, you know, that's my website is where they can read about me and about, um, the company's performance. So Ellie mm-hmm. is E L L I E. And uh, so Ellie Perlman in one word.com. That's how they can uh, reach out to me. Super simple. Oh, and you also have a podcast that I think is an amazing podcast, Ready to Scale. So that's somewhere else where where people can learn more about uh, about you. So we'll put uh, links to the website, put links to the podcast in the uh, in the show notes. Anybody who's interested, you know, go check her out. Rochelle, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? My website is investtitanium.com. So my brand is Titanium Investments. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, You can look me up on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. I've got company pages on all of those different platforms. Um, You can also search for me by name. My first name's a little tricky with the the spelling, but (laughs) Titanium Investments is probably a little easier way to find me. All right. We'll make sure we spell your name right in the show show notes so people can Google you properly. But uh, um, good enough. Well, thank you two so much for coming on today's show. I appreciate your time. And I think this was a really, really good episode. Thank you, Brian. Brian. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.